Good morning, Castleton Church family. What a delight and a joy we have to study God's word together this morning. Our passage will be in 1 Thessalonians, sorry, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We're continuing our series. We finished off 1 Thessalonians last week. We're just going to pick right up with the second letter to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is what scripture says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the comfort and confidence we can draw from your word. Thank you for the way it gives us a vision of our lives and of history showing us the destination we are heading to and the great hope of our salvation and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, would you help our faith Would you grant us to trust you in greater and greater measure? Would you grant us faith, yes, even in affliction, so we might give you glory in the way we live? We pray these things in the name of our mighty Lord Jesus. Amen. A river, a bayou is a river that ain't going any place in particular and is in no hurry to get there. Having grown up in Louisiana, I think that's a a pretty apt description for the type of wetland called a bayou. It's a ground that has water over it. It It flows at a very, very slow rate. Uh, That particular quote came from a a childhood book called The Big Thicket that I I remember long, long ago. That's a a good description for a wetland, a, a bayou. A river that ain't going any place in particular and no hurry to get there. But if you apply those same attributes to life and even human history, you end up in a very dark, dark place. There's a philosopher, historian named Damon Keown. He says this, he says, history has no overall direction or purpose. There are millions of people around the world that believe that. That life really doesn't have any meaning except maybe a meaning we add to it or slap on top of it. That history's not really going anywhere. We're just muddling along little by little with no purpose. What a contrast it is to the understanding that Christians have about life. And yes, about human history. We don't think of ourselves in a meandering bayou, we think of ourselves in a raging river, the river of history 
uh, pushing us all inevitably toward a destination, Judgment Day. The day where we will all meet our Creator. And the day when all things will be brought to an end. The letter of the second Thessalonians, much like the first letter of the Thessalonians, is dealing largely with matters of salvation and, yes, of eternity. It's designed to give Christians a, a way to have confidence and comfort as they wait together for that day of salvation to come. I hope as we study this second letter, much like as we did in our study through the first letter, that we will be encouraged in our faith. And yes, even equipped to live more faithfully until the day Jesus returns. I want to show you the kind of purpose statement in the book. It's in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through the beginning part of 3. I'll read it briefly. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. The timeline went something like this. Paul wrote that first letter to the Thessalonians to address the issues that we covered over the last several months. A short time after, he received word that they had received the letter, that it had its effect, and yet some additional concerns had arisen. Uh, seemed like there were some false prophecies that they were receiving by way of letter or maybe by mouth that were troubling this otherwise healthy church. So Paul fired off a second letter in a short period of time, maybe a few weeks or months, to bolster their faith and keep them from being troubled by these messages that supposedly were coming from God. As we study the book, I hope we will uh, find ourselves encouraged in a similar way. As we have a greater understanding of what the coming of our Lord Jesus will be like, and the great hope we have in the salvation he will bring. Well, this morning we're in those first four verses. And the topic for this morning is very fitting for Valentine's Day. It is the topic of persecution. You may say, wait a second. I thought Valentine's Day, I, you know, I think of cards and candies. I don't think about Christians suffering for their faith. But actually the day Valentine's Day goes back to a, a guy named Valentine back in the early days of Christianity, uh, roughly AD 270, under Emperor Claudius, uh, this man named Valentine was killed for his faith. Now it, it's a matter of legend, the specifics of it, so I won't say that this is for sure what happened, but legend says that he did so because he... Uh, it was forbidden at that point for Christians to marry. And Valentine, out of great love for the Christians that desired to be wed, he performed a wedding ceremony and lost his life for it. Uh, again, probably from legend, but legend has it that before he was taken away to be killed, he left a note to his jailer that said on it, your Valentine. See, that, that's where Valentine's cards come from. But the topic of persecution is a relevant one 
It's been a relevant one since the first days of Christianity and it remains one today. Open Doors, a a Christian ministry that keeps track of persecution around the world of Christians, it says there are 340 million Christians around the world today that are being persecuted for their faith. Believers in places like China and Iran regularly pay a heavy price for their allegiance to Jesus. And yet, we live in the United States, and there's a growing sense of anxiety among evangelical Christians in the United States that we might, in increasing measure, experience persecution. It wasn't uh, all that long ago that I saw a quote circulating around on Facebook. I think it captures what many of us fear will happen to the church in the United States. This is from a Catholic cardinal named Francis George. He says this, he said, I expect to die in my bed. My successor will die in prison and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. That's a pretty pessimistic view of what is coming for Christians in the United States, but you can understand how people get there. You don't have to be a doomsday prophet to draw the lines from current events, the cultural winds and the way they're blowing, to the reality that Christians could be persecuted in the United States. I mean, think about it. We are becoming more and more familiar with Christians being labeled with terms like transphobic, lizard-brained, We're becoming familiar with the word being deplatformed. Even a couple weeks ago, a focus on the family ministry, uh, Life Center News, was kicked off of social media for posting what is historic Christian ethics regarding manhood and womanhood. You can also look forward to what's coming And you can understand why people will be pessimistic. Just look up the Equality Act. It's a a piece of legislation that is actively being discussed that if it were enshrined in law would take much of the moral revolution and make it the law of the land in the United States. You can see why Christians are increasingly anxious and get the sense that the days are getting darker around us. Well, it's for reasons like that that the book of 2 Thessalonians and our text this morning, the first four verses, are especially relevant for us. Because it turns out, even if the Lord has persecution for us in the days ahead, that we have every reason to be confident and even to find comfort. Because of this, this is our main point this morning. Your faith can flourish in affliction. Your faith can flourish in affliction. We'll see that in two sections from these four verses. First, in verses one through three, we'll see flourishing faith that is from God. Flourishing faith from God. And then second, in verse four, we'll see flourishing faith in affliction. Flourishing faith in affliction. Let's look at that first section, verses one through three. Flourishing faith from God. The Thessalonian church was largely a healthy one. 
First Thessalonians had a, a very positive tone to it. The second letter to the Thessalonians also has that same sort of tone. Now the intro verses, verses one and two, are uh, a standard introduction to a letter. And they're so similar to the introduction in the uh, First Thessalonians that I'm not going to cover them except to say this much, that they are a God-centered greeting with deep theology to them. And that God-centered greeting of grace and peace from God the Father and his son Jesus to this Thessalonian church, it sets the stage for a God-centered assessment of that Thessalonian church that we get in verse 3. That assessment is a very positive one. It is one of gratitude. Look in verse 3. We, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly. The Apostle Paul has a bit of a debt of gratitude. Why? Well, it was because they have a growing faith. He, he sees their faith increasing. He, the words he uses for it give the idea of multiplication and of steady expansion. Abundantly, you can think of like a vine with fruit just falling off of it. He says it's expressed in love for each other that's seen increasingly. You get the sense that their faith is healthy and alive and going the right direction. Now it's easy enough to see that Paul is encouraged by the faith of the Thessalonian church. What's a little more difficult to wrap our head around is who, God, who Paul is thanking for the reality of that growing faith. Did he catch that? Look, it's very important. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. Paul here is describing his practice of thanksgiving prayers about the faith of the Thessalonians. Now, it's very important for, to think about the reality of who is the right recipient of thanks. Uh, there was one time I, I was on staff at a church and there were several associate pastors that were about the same age as each other, that were about the same height as each other, and all had the same hair color. And so very often we would get mistaken for each other. Well, one particular Sunday, uh, a dear sister in the Lord came up to me and she had this huge smile on her face and she just came up and she said, Pastor, I want to thank you so much for that kind note you wrote me. It was so encouraging. It was exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, as she was saying this, I was smiling and nodding and I was very glad for uh, the encouragement she had. But I knew the whole time she was thanking the wrong person. I did not write that note. I almost didn't have the heart to tell her at the end. I said, sister, I'm so glad you're encouraged. Uh, I actually am not the one that wrote that note. You, you need to go thank the other pastor over there. Now, think about this for a second. Paul is thankful for the faith of the Thessalonians. But the person, the one he is thanking, is not the Thessalonian church. He's not saying, uh, I'm so thankful, brothers, for your faith to you. No, he's thanking God. The implication, of course, is that God, in some sense, is the originator. The one responsible for the faith present in this church. It's a very similar thought to what we get in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. 
Ephesians 2, verse 8. I'll read it for you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Grammar in that verse makes clear that it's not just salvation that's a gift from God. It is the very faith that brings it about. Now you may say, but wait a second. I I thought we are responsible for our faith. I thought God requires faith of us. And that if we do not have faith, we'll be condemned. And I would say, yes, the Bible teaches that. It also teaches that God is the giver of faith. And those two thoughts are not incompatible with each other. If that makes your head hurt, good. You're, you're understanding what the Bible teaches. God is the one who brought about the faith of this church. And that means God is the one deserving of the thanks for that faith increasing, abounding, and yes, even flourishing. So as a summary of this section, you could say that Paul had great joy at the flourishing faith of the Thessalonian church. That as he saw what God had done within them to give them this growing faith, his heart overflowed with gratitude, which he expressed back to God in prayer. Now, brothers and sisters, there's several lines of application here that we need to draw. One would be, realize that you need to draw encouragement from seeing the growth in faith of other Christians. Part of what you need to stay encouraged in your own faith is to see other Christians progressing in the faith. And that's one of the reasons why you need to be a member of a local church. Have you had that experience where you see another Christian have a spiritual growth spurt, come to a new understanding of God, go go through a difficult trial, and come out the other side stronger for it? And as you hear them talk about what God's done in their life, and as you see the joy in their life, you can't help but have your own heart abound in joy also. God intends for that to be our regular experience. Uh, Not because we ourselves will just go from one spiritual mountaintop to the other. But because when we are gathered in a community of believers, we draw encouragement and joy from each other as we see this growth of our faith in our local church's community. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of a community like that. So when you do progress in the faith, I hope you share your story with your brothers and sisters in your local church. And I hope it also gives you motivation to be diligent, to be a part of the community of our local church. Now, let's notice also there's an important application here about how we can encourage each other. When you see something commendable in the life of another Christian, you actually have a couple of ditches you could very easily fall into. One would be flattery. That is, you just go up to the person and in trying to encourage them, you're careless with your words and you actually become an occasion for their pride. You you could do this by giving them the glory for what you you are seeing. You could say, uh, brother, I'm so thankful for the way that I see you. Um, uh, Sorry, messed that up there. For example, let's say you saw someone uh, teach a class and you're very encouraged by it. If, If you were to go up to them and say, you are such a good teacher. That was the best class I've ever heard. Well, at that point, you've actually engaged in flattery. You're puffing that person up, even as you're attempting to encourage them. So on the other hand, some Christians fall into the ditch on the other side, 
And that is they just remain silent. They benefit from a class. They, they see something commendable in another Christian. They just don't say anything about it because they don't want to produce pride in that person. But do you notice Paul gives us a, a wonderful way forward on this. We can actually encourage other Christians by telling them what we see God doing within them. I mean, you could just start your encouragement with a phrase like this. Can I tell you what I see God doing in your life? Or can you say, you could say something like, praise God for the way that you blank, blank, blank. When we're faithful to give God the glory for the growth and faithfulness of the Christians, we encourage their hearts and we guard against pride by giving God the glory. Third line of application here is that let's realize that our faith, it's not a static thing. Our faith is a growing, alive relationship with God. Uh, from my view in my home office, I can look out and I can see our fence line, which is covered with uh, all sorts of vegetation. Now, uh, over the months that I've been working out of my home office very often, I I've noticed uh, the vegetation has grown. I can see less and less of the fence. But the fence has not. The fence is exactly the same and maybe just in slightly worse, more rotted shape than it was a, a few months ago. You should think of your faith more like the vegetation and less like an inanimate object, like a fence. You know, faith is a relationship. It's your trust that you have with God. And that means that as you get to know God better, your faith will inevitably grow. Genuine faith grows. That's one of its characteristics. That doesn't mean that it grows the same rate at every season of life or that people's journeys of faith are the same as each other, that we can expect a Christian to grow the same rate as another Christian. And yet, one of the marks of genuine faith is that it grows. So brothers and sisters, I must ask you, are you taking steps that will cultivate your faith? It's right to pray and ask God to increase our faith. To help us to b trust him more. To express that faith and love for other Christians in increasing greater and greater ways. It's right to take steps, very practical steps, to cultivate our faith. Well, one of the most important ones is to regularly gather together as a part of our Sunday services. Now, whether that happens digitally right now during the pandemic or you're able to be here in person, let, let me just give you an admonition here. Your faith is intended to grow. And gathering with other Christians for worship is one of the chief means God's given us for that to happen. So be diligent in that, brothers and sisters. It's a wonderfully encouraging thing to see our faith growing and to see the faith of other Christians around us grow. God intends for that to be true for our community. So let's endeavor to have that be true of us. Now, that first point is important enough that our faith from God needs to flourish. But just as important is the question of what happens when difficulty comes. That's our second point. Flourishing faith in affliction. That's what we see in verse 4. Flourishing faith in affliction. 
there was a bold, underlined reason why this faith of the Thessalonian church brought such joy to Paul's heart. It was because it was in the midst of difficult circumstances. The Thessalonians were beginning to experience real persecution. You can see that in the words he uses to describe them. It says they are steadfast in faith, in all your persecutions, and in the afflictions you are enduring. The picture is of a church beginning to suffer for Christ and not flinching as they do. The situation was one where both Jew and Gentile Christians were experiencing forms of persecution. And not yet to the point where they were likely losing their lives over it. But certainly losing social standing and losing family members and friends because of their allegiance to Jesus. Paul looks at that and it becomes the dark backdrop against which their faith pops out even more. He says, your faith, your endurance, your steadfastness is a reason to boast about you. Now notice though that his boasting, in this case isn't to God, it is to other Christians, other churches. Beginning of verse 4, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. So in other words, this example of the Thessalonian church was so exemplary, so encouraging that Paul and his itinerant ministry going around planting and visiting churches kept on bringing them up saying, brothers and sisters, be like that church in Thessalonica. What we see here is that faith in affliction actually leads to great encouragement. That it actually builds faith when you hear stories of Christians facing persecution for Christ and standing up under the test. As we hear stories like that, it helps to recenter us. To remind us that Jesus actually told us that it's normal Christianity to experience persecution. Got three texts for you that we'll briefly run through here, all from the Gospels, all from the lips of Jesus, telling his disciples to expect persecution. First John 15, 20. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Allegiance to Jesus means being persecuted like our master, Jesus. What about Matthew 5, 11 through 12? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution is actually a sort of validation that you really do belong to team Jesus. What about Luke 14, 26? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You're not really ready to follow Jesus until you're ready to give up everything for him. 
See, brothers and sisters, persecution is actually normal Christianity. We need to be regularly reminded of that fact, and we need to see examples of faith in affliction so our own faith can be ready if the Lord indeed were to ask us to walk through that fiery furnace of affliction. It's an important thing to regularly expose yourself to stories of faith in affliction. Now, living in the United States, we don't have the intensity and regularity of persecution as many believers around the world. And, and that means we need to avail ourselves of the means of communication to connect ourselves to the global church. If you're not in the habit of doing so, two great organizations that do this well, Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors, uh, both of them do this work of gathering stories of faith and affliction. And if you do the work to listen to those stories, as uncomfortable as it might be to do so regularly, you'll actually find your heart and your faith encouraged. And for, and for that reason, I'm going to share a story of faith and affliction with you right now. I'm thankful for the compelled podcast that put the, the story of Virginia Prodan on my radar. Back in the 1980s, Romania was a communist country. It was under the leadership of a brutal dictator by the name of Nicolas Ceausescu. The Christians in Romania were experiencing intense persecution. They were regularly monitored, tracked, arrested, beaten, and in some cases outright killed. It was in that environment that a young, petite lawyer named Virginia came to Christ. She was searching for truth and she came across the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus himself. She put, gave her life to Christ and was radically converted and then turned around and felt a calling from God to defend the rights of Christians against the communist regime. She found old rules that were on the books that the communists hadn't got, gotten around to removing from law. And she would use those to defend Christians who were arrested for having Bibles or for evangelizing. She's not even five feet tall, and yet she stood up tall enough to be noticed by the international community. Around the world, people heard about this petite woman who is staring down an evil dictator. Well, shortly enough, that dictator came to the conclusion that she was more trouble than she was worth. It was time to get rid of her. So he dispatched an assassin. One evening, as she was finishing up her workday, her fi final client came in, locked the door behind her, and said these words. I'm from the government, and as he took out a gun, he said, and I am here to kill you. I don't know how any of us, that any of us can know how we would react in a moment like that. But thanks be to God, we do know how Virginia did. The podcast uh, host narrating, I'll let him cut the story at this point. Unlike her assassin, Virginia wasn't holding a gun, but the weapon she wielded proved to be infinitely more powerful. And this weapon wasn't a weapon that destroyed, but rather one that healed. 
as Virginia began to speak of God's love and grace, she watched a change come over the man in front of her. His hard heart was softened, and he became broken over his sin. His initial suspicion of what she was sharing turned into deep contemplation. Virginia shared several passages with him, including John 3.16 and Acts 31. But finally, she shared with him the same passage that had rocked her world as well. John 14.6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And with that, Virginia's would-be assassin repented of his sins and gave his life to Christ. He came that evening to kill Virginia, but instead left her office as her brother in Christ. That's extraordinary faith in the, faith in the face of incredible affliction. She actually converted her assassin by sharing the good news of the gospel that we all have to share with anyone that the Lord brings into our life. That, that uh, assassin would go on to uh, actually go to her church after she fled the country. He would himself become a committed Christian and even enter the ministry. Uh, at the end of the book, Virginia wrote about her testimony. He actually wrote a letter to give his side of the story. This is part of it. I want you to read. This is a man that went to kill a Christian before he became one himself. He said this, I am Virginia's brother in Christ. No matter what happens to me, I will treasure that memory and extend to others, even those who may persecute me, the same love and forgiveness she has shown to me. It's hard to believe that one day Jesus will say to all, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Is your heart encouraged by what can happen when faith endures affliction? See, brothers and sisters, uh, none of us knows what the days ahead will bring. We should humbly, even as we might have a sense of the way the winds are blowing, we should humbly, along with, uh, with James, say, if the Lord wills, this or that will happen. But what we can have confidence in is that the faith that we have in our Lord Jesus is a faith that can flourish in affliction. And that means we shouldn't be fearful about the days ahead. We should find comfort and confidence in the fact that we will be able to live faithfully until our day of salvation arrives, when the Lord Jesus himself returns and any sufferings or persecution we might endure will be an afterthought. Brothers and sisters, your faith can flourish in affliction. So take heart. and Don't fear the days ahead. I gave you that quote from Cardinal George. It's fascinating. It turns out that that was actually only a fragment of what was meant to be a hopeful statement. I was able to track it down online. It's true. He did say those exact words. I expect to die in my bed, 
A successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. But his next words are equally as important. He says, his successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization, as the church has done so often in human history. Now, I don't know that he is right about his assessment of history, but I do know that that cardinal, at the very least, has the right outlook of the future. Yes, it it may well be that the days will get darker, but that will only let our faith shine brighter because your faith can flourish in affliction if your faith is in Jesus Christ. Now, I can't end a sermon like this without addressing anyone who might not yet have faith in Jesus. Uh, Maybe you're listening to this sermon and you're not a Christian. I want to ask you, friend, is there anything in your life that you would be willing to die for? There are certainly some very noble causes that people give their lives for. Love of country, love of friends and family. And yet to understand why people live the way they do as Christians, even to the point of giving up their own life, It only makes sense if you understand the one that they trust, the man Jesus himself. See, Christians believe we have found the thing that we need most, the thing that's more valuable than anything else in this life, that we are made for a relationship with God and that we can actually have it through the man Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is God that has come down from heaven and come to live as a person, that he was both God and man. We believe he did that to deal with our greatest need, the the problem of our sin. We believe that without Jesus coming and giving his life as a substitutionary sacrifice, that there would be no hope for any of us on the day when he returns. That the end of that river of history, when our creator brings us each the day of judgment, that we would all be doomed on that day because our sins make us guilty before a holy God. But because Jesus gave his life as a perfect sacrifice, we can be forgiven. He absorbed the righteous wrath of God against sinners. And so if we trust him, we can have all of our sins wiped away. Yes, even the worst of sins like murder. We believe that that same Jesus came back to life three days after he died, that he was resurrected from the dead, and that's why he can promise us eternal life with God. That eternal life means even if we are to die in a horrible way in this world, we don't end up on the wrong end of the deal. We have an eternity with God full of joy and peace that outweighs any of the sufferings in this life. Friend, there's nowhere else that you will find truth. Nowhere else that you will find peace with God. Nowhere else that you will find ultimate purpose, except in the man, Jesus Christ. He only asks one thing of you, that you would trust him. That you would trust him so much that you would renounce all other claims on your life. That you would turn from the things you think that are good about yourself and you would turn from the things you know are wrong about yourself. 
that you would allow him to be the Lord and master of your life and trust that he really can make you right with God. Friend, that's what it means to be a Christian. And today, today could be the first day on your journey of life with God through Jesus Christ. If you don't know how to do that after the service, just come find anyone with a name tag on, one of our staff members. We would love to help you put your trust in Jesus and have the same assurance we do. You can have a hope, a hope that even persecution and the threat of your death can't take from you because faith in Jesus, very strangely, it flourishes in affliction. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we are not worthy of you, our master, and yet we trust you with everything. Forgive us for so how easily we allow our hearts to be filled with fear about what might happen, of what days you might ask us to live through. Oh Jesus, would you grant us the sort of faith that has confidence and even comfort to know that our faith could flourish if you asked us to suffer. Jesus, I pray that as we come now to the Lord's ta- to your table, to the Lord's table, that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would grant us the sort of faith that would not be shaken by what might come, that we would remember your sacrifice for us and our security in heaven with you, And that we would have rock solid confidence that that security is coming back to this earth. That nothing can snatch us from your hand. Oh Lord Jesus, make us into that sort of community. One that has steadfastness and endurance in our faith. One that shines brighter as the days get darker. Do that amongst us now, we pray in your name. Amen.